Good morning, everybody, and welcome to Resurrection City Church. Uh, my name is Joel, and as Nick alluded to, I am one of the pastors here, and we're going to be uh, spending a little bit of time here walking through God's Word. Um, thankful to have you joining us on this Sunday morning. Uh, I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to enter into today's message. Lord, thank you for um, being with us today. I pray that as, as we study your word, as we study this word that you gave to us through your Holy Spirit, speaking to a community of people uh, just like us, the Corinthian church, uh, thousands of years ago, that, Lord, you would help this word delivered through Paul by your spirit to, be, uh, to have a, a resonance with us that is evergreen. Lord, that is not just um, something that was important for this church in Corinth to hear all that time ago, but that still produces life and wisdom um, and knowledge of what it looks like to follow you and to model your son Jesus well and to live by your gospel, um, even all this time later, God. So we ask that you would do that through your spirit this morning for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So... One of the movies of the summer this year is Oppenheimer. I don't know if any of you guys have seen Oppenheimer yet. I finally got to see it earlier this week. Um, I thought it was definitely worthy of the hype. I really enjoyed it. It's a very, very great and very sobering movie. Um, I, uh, I love biographies. I love history. And so this is kind of right up my alley. Um, now, I don't know if you know this, but the, the, the movie is actually based on a biography. It's a book called... Um, uh, American Prometheus, and um, I was at a bookstore uh, a few weeks ago, and I saw it right at the very front of the bookstore. You know, they're kind of selling it because it's like the hot biography. Yeah, there is such a thing as like a hot biography. Yes, every once in a while, a book comes along, and it's, it's really, you know, it's a history book, but it really grabs people's attention, and that's this book right now, but about a decade ago, there was another book like that, and it was called uh, Team of Rivals. Anyone hear of that one? That was, the, that was the biography that was at the front of the bookstore. It's actually um, a biography, uh, it's written by a woman named Doris Kearns Goodwin about Abraham Lincoln. And it's not, not just a biography about him, I think it's actually more focused on his decision to invite a bunch of his challengers in the presidential election uh, that he went through into his cabinet. And so that, that's where the, the, the name of the book comes from, Team of Rivals, right? He created a team of these men who were kind of challenging each other for, for president. And um, Lincoln's thinking on this uh, was, these are all smart, motivated guys, what if we brought them all in together and tried to harness some of that ambition that led these guys to run for president, um, try to harness that uh, in, 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 a, in a positive direction for the good of the country? And obviously, that was a time in our country's history where we really needed that. Um, and so, anyway, the book is about that. And it was like a really popular book. All these leadership people wanted to read it and learn about how to do the same thing and, and whatever. Um, but one of the things about it that's really interesting is it, it kind of details the ways that these rivals of Lincoln's, um, who mostly thought of themselves as better than Lincoln, he was just this kind of country bumpkin from Illinois to them, and they thought, there's no way this guy is going to actually succeed. And at least early on, a lot of these guys are kind of thinking, eventually, it's not going to work out, and the country will turn to me to be their savior. And so, anyway, they're trying to, you know, some of them are trying to undermine him and backroom wheel and deal behind him to kind of get the presidency. And there's especially one guy named, named Sam and Chase who did that. Um, he, he even, he was the secretary of the treasury, and he even printed money with his face on it. 
um, just to try to get his name recognition out there so he could run for president a little bit later on against Lincoln. Um, He just really struggled to, what we could say, become less for the good of the country. He struggled to become less for the good of everybody else um, because Lincoln was the guy we needed to lead the country in that moment. It wasn't Sam and Chase. Now, early on in Jesus' ministry, there's a very similar moment that could have derailed the whole thing, the whole growth of the kingdom story that we read about in the Gospels. And it's John the Baptist. He's Jesus' cousin. And when we start out by reading the Gospels, he is the hot new preacher. He is the guy that social media is buzzing about. His clips are making it all the way you know, around social media. He seemed to be the one that God had set up for everyone to respond to. And his ministry was swelling in popularity because of it. So one day, his cousin Jesus shows up, and things start to change for John. Uh, Slowly, people start to kind of transfer their excitement and hope over what God is doing from John over to Jesus and his ministry. And not too long after this is uh, taking place, John is asked by some of his close friends and disciples why he's just sort of sitting back and letting it happen. Why aren't you doing something? Like, that, this is supposed to be you. It was you. You did a lot of work to get to this point. You're a really good dude. Why are you just letting everybody leave and go follow Jesus instead? And he gives an analogy. He basically says, imagine how absurd it would be for someone who came to a wedding, even like the best man, and they tried to make the wedding all about himself, right? If you are an Office fan, you think of Phyllis's wedding, right? Where Michael tries to hijack Phyllis's wedding. It's, maybe my, it's probably my favorite episode of The Office. It is so good. It is so cringy because it is so awkward and weird. You would never do that, right? You would never do that. Um, Michael thinks it's his right, 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 in his weird, twisted Michael logic to make the wedding all about himself, right? And what John is saying is that we're all tempted to be Michael in different places in our life, right? And in th- him trying to assert his, his right or something over Jesus would be like that. And instead he says, and this is a very a famous thing that he says, Jesus and his kingdom must become greater, and I must become less. Now think about what John is saying here, okay? He had been set apart for this mission from the very beginning, from his birth, the very beginning of the Gospels. And he had, you know, we presume he'd been grinding all of his life to get to that point, preparing for it, um, that he thought it was his purpose, it was his right, really, to fulfill this. And he should get his. We would think he should get his, right? But what he's saying is that for Jesus, he is going to be willing to give all that up and fade into obscurity. For Jesus and for the good of the kingdom, he's willing to fade into the background. Now, the significance, I think, of this is often missed, but it's incredibly important, I think, for the development of the church for the rest of the story in the Gospels. Because while people like Sam and Chase or Michael Scott represent kind of a normal pattern for, for most of us, a normal pattern, even if it's an extreme one, right? The normal pattern for us, John sets a tone for the whole kingdom with this principle that says this thing is only really going to grow if we're willing to give up our preferences, our freedom, our authority, maybe even our rights sometimes for the good of God and his work in the world, putting Jesus and his ministry to the world first above ourselves, And so here's a question for us to grapple with this morning. 
Are we willing to give those things up too, or are we going to try to be like Sam and Chase or Michael Scott at a wedding, right? And that's, so that's what our sermon's about today. Oh, sorry, there's a picture of Team of Rivals, my bad. Are you willing to become less for Jesus, giving up our rights and preferences for the kingdom, okay? Today what we're going to do is we're going to explore some passages that really unpack this mindset in the book of 1 Corinthians, and, and we're going to ask that question of ourselves deeply, kind of walk through it, and then we're going to actually really focus on two examples of, I think, of what it would look like to maybe apply this in different settings. Now, we're, we're in a series, we've been doing it throughout the summer, through the book of 1 Corinthians, and it's called Becoming Who We Are. Right? We're talking about what it looks like for us to live into this holy identity that has been given to us by Jesus. And we're, I would contend that what we're going to talk about today is an aspect of holiness. Now, we find ourselves in the middle of like a longer section uh, in the letter, and Paul is kind of continuing on with this argument on why the Corinthians should not go to idol feasts. And he's talked a lot about rights and knowledge kind of at stake here. Now, last week, we really unpacked that. We're not going to really talk about that aspect of it at all today. Um, but basically, he said, it's good for the rest of the church if we let love and other-centeredness lead us rather than attention and status that we think we might deserve from being, essentially, he talks about thinking about your, yourself as being smarter than everyone else around you, right? Or at least thinking you are. Now, in this passage in chapter 9, Paul shifts into a discussion of how he views what he does with his own rights and authority as an apostle of Jesus. And Paul, we're going to read, is prepared to do all sorts of crazy things with those for the sake of the gospel. So let me read, um, we'll read through kind of a, a couple of parts of the first 23 verses. It gets, it gets a little repetitive, so I won't read every single verse to you, but um, let's read verses, uh, 1 Corinthians 9, 1 to 6, 11, 15, and we'll skip to um, 19 to 23. Am I not as free as anyone else? Am I not an apostle? Haven't I seen Jesus, our Lord, with my own eyes? Isn't it because of my work that you belong to the Lord? Even if others think I am not an apostle, I certainly am to you. You yourselves are proof that I am the Lord's apostle. This is my answer to those who question my authority. Don't we have the right to live in your homes and share your meals? Don't we have the right to bring a believing wife with us as the other apostles and the Lord's brothers do and as Peter does? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have, the work to, who have to work to support ourselves? Since we have planted spiritual seed among you, aren't we entitled to a harvest of physical food and drink? If you support others who preach you, shouldn't we have an even greater right to be supported? Now, just to pause here, Paul's explaining, he's kind of establishing a right or an authority that he has because of his status as an apostle and how he could and totally it would be legitimate for him to draw on that and ask them to, ask them to financially support him. Um, okay, so that's kind of what, what's going on here. But he continues on and says, we have never used this right. We would rather put up with anything than be an obstacle to the good news about Christ. Don't you realize that those who work in a temple get their meals from the offerings brought to the temple, and those who serve at the altar get a share of the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord ordered that those who preach the good news should be supported by those who benefit from it. Yet we have never used any of those rights. Skipping to verse 19. Even though I am a free man with no master, I have become a slave to all people to bring many to Christ. When I was with the Jews, I lived like a Jew to bring the Jews to Christ. When I was with those who follow the Jewish law, I too lived under that law. 
Even though I am not subject to the law, I did this so I could bring to Christ those who are under the law. When I am with the uh, Gentiles who do not follow the Jewish law, I, li- I too live apart from the law so that I can bring them to Christ. But I do not ignore the law of God, I obey the law of Christ. When I am with those who are weak, I share their weakness, for I want to bring the weak to Christ. Yes, I try to find common ground with, any, with everyone, doing everything I can to save some. I do everything to spread the good news and share in its blessings. In Paul's mind, his rights as an apostle would allow him to do things like be paid for his work, be supported, um, to be uh, kind of uh, set up a patron-client system is what you call in the ancient world. Okay, and that's what a lot of this is about. And it seems like a small ask, right? And he does do it sometimes. So just to be clear, it's not like Paul never, you know, allows people to support him financially. And in this case, he isn't. And there's a little bit more to the story. We learn a little bit more about this in 2 Corinthians as well. It's not really important for us to get into the background of all of that. Um, but what's important for us to know here is that he has said to the Corinthians, I'm not interested in your money. I'm going to do all of this stuff, this work among you for totally free. You don't have to worry about paying me for it. And he sees that policy with the Corinthians as an example to them of the upside-down dynamics of the kingdom of God, which is founded on denying rights or authority for a kingdom purpose. Okay? And so while Paul's not against people's rights, he's not against people's authority being respected, but what he's saying is that the kingdom is not founded on that. It's not founded on getting yours or grinding to get the bag or loving yourself first or some mindset where personal security and comfort are the first order of business, the first thing we have to get in place before we can move on to anything else. It can't be founded on those things, and it can't grow through them. The kingdom can't be built on rights or getting what we deserve because it didn't come to us in that way. It came to us totally undeserved, unconditioned, unasked for, unasserted, undemanded for us by sinners. So how is it able to grow any differently? Instead, it's founded on and it's created on and can only be sustained by over and over investing in the work of living in the pattern of Jesus and the gospel ourselves. When we think big picture about this, what Paul is saying, he's not asking us to do anything that Jesus didn't do for us himself, right? John is on the list here, but Christ is the supreme example of it, okay? On the cross, think to what's going on at the cross. God has invested into the redemption of the world with everything that he has, including his own life, in order to win us and anyone else who would join this kingdom that had been established there. To establish the kingdom of God and share its blessings with this world, God gave us everything, to provide justice, but also rescue us from it. God gave us everything that he had. To pour out his spirit on us, sinners and unjust and messed ourselves, God gave us everything that he had to give. To live in the kingdom and to see it grow means to adopt this pattern in living it ourselves. Okay, that's the big idea here. And Paul thinks that making himself a slave, that's the word he uses, a slave to others, which means curtailing his own freedom for their benefit and the growing of the kingdom is what's going to make this happen ultimately. Okay, but even more so, I think it's also the sign of someone who's not just here to mess around, but is serious 
about the kingdom like Jesus was. And you see that in the pattern of living that he has, not just in what he says or he thinks, but actually how he patterns his life, the decisions that he makes, the things that he does with the people around him. It all reflects that. Okay, and so it means that Paul will give up what he has to make time and take on and learn about any person, to learn about their interests, what matters to them, to take time to be with them on a regular basis, to know what makes them them, and maybe even to be like them in some way so that they may be able to experience the blessings both here and now of the God who has done likewise, have given up everything for us. Okay? That's the big idea here. Now, if we're honest, okay, this sounds really good, but it's super hard for us to live this out in practice. This is a quote from a, 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 a commentary in 1 Corinthians that kind of details why it's really tough for us uh, to do this, why it's kind of like swimming upstream for us in a lot of ways in the culture that we live in. It's by a, a, a commentary named N.T. Wright. He says, Western culture, okay, American specifically, I would say, still tells its own story of, the, of, the, of developing freedoms, uh, uh, and any attempt to speak of discipline or self-denial or the necessary abandonment of quote-unquote rights is shouted down as a return to the Dark Ages. Not that those doing the shouting often have much idea of what those periods of history were actually like. The gospel will demand that you give up your rights and freedoms, even if this feels like going into hard athletic training. Paul doesn't want to end up himself and doesn't want his churches to end up like people in a boxing ring who are simply waving their arms around. Far too much Christianity is like that today, and Paul saw the danger already. People making a lot of fuss about some things but doing none of the hard and demanding work that would actually advance the gospel in their own lives and in the world. Okay? The world that we live in is going to always tell you that you've got to put yourself first, right? That that's the fundamental message that we're going to hear over and over again. And I think we can get so concerned with throwing around our time and money and try, just trying to chase our desires or freedom or, or stuff that we think we can get with it, when in reality, a lot of times what, we're, what we do with our freedom is actually just kind of living into like the script that advertisers and trendsetters set in front of us anyway. We're not actually living that freely. We're following a pattern that someone has told us that we're supposed to live, okay? And at the end of the day, what it's like is just us kind of waving our hands around, like punching empty air instead of actually boxing someone. Now, that analogy of boxing, N.T. Wright didn't make it up on his own. It's actually something that Paul says as we continue on in the passage. Let me read it for us. Verses 24 to 27. Don't you realize that in a race, everyone runs, but only one person gets the prize? So run to win. All athletes are disciplined in their training. They do it to win a prize that will fade away, but we do it for an eternal prize. So I run with purpose in every step. I am not just shadow boxing. I discipline my body like an athlete, training it to do what it should. Otherwise, I fear that after preaching to others, I myself might be disqualified. There's a big difference between athletes who are there to seriously compete and those who are there to just kind of have a good time. Okay? Think about the difference between our Red City softball team. I think it's like the third time I brought it up this summer, but the analogies just keep flowing out of it. So um, we just wrapped up earlier this week, and um, like, we have a really good time together. Um, you know, the guys that are there to play softball, we're amateurs, okay? We're amateurs. We like to you know, pretend that we get to be real baseball players when we do it, but we're not anything close to it. It's a hobby, right? It's something we do for fun. 
we don't really practice, right? We practice a couple times at the beginning of the year, but that's really about it. We just kind of show up and play. Um, one of the guys recently I noticed in the middle of the game, he's eating McDonald's ice cream, um, <laughs> right in the middle of the game. Um, and, and other teams, you know, if you've ever been to a, a softball league, you know they're two or three beers deep by the end of the game, right? Um, that's just normal. It's, that's what you do when you're amateur, when you're there for fun, when you're doing a hobby. Okay? Now go to, a, go to a pro baseball game. Go watch the Twins play. Actually find out what they're doing behind the scenes, and it's completely different. Right? They're, getting in, they're, they're not just practicing. They're actually practicing specifically for their opponents. They're getting intimate details of their opponents. They're scouting them meticulously. Um, they only eat the best food. Right? They have personal trainers. They have cooks who cook the best food to kind of to make their bodies act like perfectly running machines, right? They put in hours and hours to hone their swing um, so that they're, you know, hitting the ball at the right contact angle with the right exit velocity, right? They have all this baseball jargon behind it, okay? It's their life. It's who they are, right? That's the difference between an amateur and a pro, okay? There's a big difference. And here's the point that Paul's trying to make in this passage. In regards to your faith, be a pro, not an amateur, okay? The kingdom is not a hobby, right? Only amateurs are going to approach it that way. Instead, let it be the pattern of life and what all you do is founded on. And the way to do it, at least here in this passage, there's other ways we could maybe talk about what that looks like. The, the way to do it here is to not be so focused on your own freedom and rights and comfort and authority that what you're doing is creating obstacles to grow the kingdom of God. I want to give a couple of examples of what this could look like, right? This is, this is one of those things where like, we need to think deeply and have wisdom about what it would look like for us to do this well. Let me give you a, a couple of examples of what this can look like, I think, um, y- you know, just to get you thinking, okay? And two areas of impact that we can maybe have with this. The first is on leadership, and the other is on Sabbath or, or self-care, okay? I'll unpack both of these. Okay, but first of all, let's talk uh, leadership, all right? And I want to use an example for how we've thought through this in regards to how we deal with men and women in leadership here at Res City, okay? Now, this is a hot-button issue today, okay? It's very, very controversial, very contested. And when we planted, we're only four years old here, four and a half years old, we're trying to discern a pathway forward for us and how we wanted to wade through this complementarian egalitarian debate and figure out, you know, how we want to approach, you know, ministry roles for women and, and, and read different scriptures in different ways. And, and obviously, if you know anything about Res City, you know we do include women in, in our leadership here at Res City at every level, okay? Now, how do we get there? Well, actually, this concept in 1 Corinthians 9 was very helpful for us in this passage that we're talking about today. And one of our goals in deciding how we would do leadership was that we wanted to take Scripture seriously, okay? But not just a few parts of it, everything, and learn to not just uh, understand certain concepts, but think in a way that is in line with Scripture, to be soaked in it, okay? And knowing that this issue is not as black and white as it often gets made to be, okay? It's a difficult issue. You have to approach it with some humility and some wisdom, okay? And there is this thing that Paul does bring up a few times um, in his letters. It's, it's called headship. It applies to males. We're actually going to get into a passage that talks about that a little bit next week, so we won't really get into it here now. It's not really that important, honestly, for, what I'm, for the point I'm trying to make. Um, the problem with it is that it's very unclear, 
okay, by what he means to it. And I think applying it into church leadership is just, it's tough to know exactly what he's talking about, okay? We're all kind of expanding out a bit to build positions, right? Okay, so we're, we're coming as a church to think through this and trying to figure out how do we have wisdom on this issue? Because we have to actually get practical on it in a church setting. And when we were deciding on a structure, this idea, this 1 Corinthians 9 idea was very influential for us, okay? So what I want to do for you is actually I want to read an excerpt from a document um, that we wrote to kind of explain our position, which, which explains how we use this section of Scripture to help us come to the decision uh, that we made, okay? So it's a little bit longer, I apologize, but I think it's, it's super helpful. Um, so here we go. What is clear from a robust reading of Scripture is the extent to which Jesus, Paul, and others in the New Testament expect the church to view authority and leadership differently than how it is viewed outside of God's kingdom. The normal New Testament pattern is to take what is commonly held as wisdom and turn it on its head. Michelle Lee Barnawal summarizes this very compellingly when referring to Paul's view of his own rights. Okay, Quoting quoting now from uh, this author, Michelle Lee Barnawal. She says, Paul establishes his apostolic rights in 1 Corinthians 9 only to relinquish them for the sake of the gospel. He affirms that one may have the right to eat meat sacrificed to idols, but should not act on this right if it causes another believer to stumble. It's 1 Corinthians 8. In this, believers are to follow the example of Christ, seen especially in Philippians 2, 6-8, where Christ did not use his privileges as God and instead took on the form of a slave, a person who had no rights. In this context, it is not the obtaining of rights, but rather the giving up of rights that provides a critical component for promoting cohesion and intimacy among the members. Furthermore, in the inclusive community, there may still be hierarchies, although they are understood according to kingdom paradoxes. The goal for Paul is that so that nothing hinders the gospel of Jesus Christ, 1 Corinthians 9.12, he lays down any rights or authority he has. It is clear that he views authority and rights in a radically different way than his Greco-Roman contemporaries. Another example of this view of leadership is found in Matthew, where Jesus tells his disciples that the, ruler, the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give up his life as a ransom for many. That's Matthew 20, 25 to 28. The goal isn't determining who has rights to authority and then figure out who should be placed above the rest of the assembly, but for those with rights to willingly place themselves in servitude to those who do not have them. Basically, the wrong way to be a Christian leader is by asserting titles and roles and authority for yourself and asking others to submit to you. It is to take the opinions, the experiences, desires, gifts, fears, and hopes of those who do not have them and elevate them by literally putting them ahead of you. This creates unity in decision-making. We believe our church is better off when those who may have some right of headship use those rights to lift women up to an honored, dignified place where their gifts and uniquely female insights can be used for the benefit of all in the body. Because of this, both men and women will comprise our leadership team, where their unique male and female qualities will come together in unity to best care for the whole body of Christ at Res City. And the gifts of leadership, administration, teaching, and shepherding of the members of that team will benefit the church and spread the gospel. We do all of this because we are serious about the kingdom of God and making its values 
our values, okay? And that's directly tied to what our leadership looks like and how we express that on Sundays or, or anywhere else here, okay? We want to be serious about seeing the kingdom of God spread. And if that means some people need to be lifted up to places they're not by those who might have some rights or authority, we think that that's an obvious thing for us to do, right? Let's get into another example. Let's talk a little bit about self-care, okay? And we'll talk a little bit about what looks like self-care taken to the extreme, right? We did a whole series on what you could call the Christian version of self-care a a year and a half ago. It's called He Refreshes My Soul. And we talked about rhythms or habits of rest and care from the shepherd, from Jesus, that go against the grain of a world that is really constantly burning us out. We were trying to really... uh, talk about what it looks like for us to find healing and restoration from all the burnout we experience around us all the time. And we talked a lot about Sabbath, okay? Sabbath and and the boundaries that it can create are Christian staples, okay? They're not optional. I would actually go so far as to say Sabbath is not optional because it reminds us that we aren't God and that we have limitations, they give us a space to connect with God and to know ourselves. And we see Jesus routinely remove himself from um, crowds and even his disciples sometimes to go and pray in the wilderness, to spend some time alone. Now, I don't necessarily think Sabbath and self-care are necessarily the same thing. I'd encourage you to you know, ponder the difference. But I'll kind of lump them together because self-care is a bit of a buzzword today. A lot of, a lot, a lot of us understand that concept and I think see, see the value of it. And so I'll just kind of lump them together here for the sake of the sermon. Now, We should be refreshed by Sabbath. We should be taking it regularly, okay? But I also think there is such a thing as too much self-care, okay? Uh, In a book called A Church Called Toe by Scott McKnight and and Laura Berenger, I think they have a quote where they just really express this well. Self-concern and self-care must be balanced by others' orientation or we will become self-intoxicated celebrities in our own minds, okay? This is a danger that we have to look out for, okay? Or our rights and our freedom are going to start to become obstacles to the kingdom, like Paul says in verse 12, okay? So let me offer you just a few signs that your Sabbath or your self-care might actually be taken to the extreme. It might be becoming an obstacle for the kingdom, okay? I think this is a helpful diagnosis for us to ask ourselves from time to time, okay? Um, here we go. Some signs that you're maybe overdoing self-care or Sabbath, okay? First of all, you think you have to remove yourself, from others in the church or church settings or Jesus' presence in order to do it, right? Have you considered that maybe being around other people and actually serving them could actually rejuvenate us in some way? Perhaps it might actually give us life to do these things, to include this as part of our Sabbath, okay? Um, sometimes, yeah, it might be a little bit more out of your extrovert tank to do it, but you will leave refreshed as you show love to other people and serve them. Okay. Uh, second, um, you never say no to little delights. Okay. If you're just using Sabbath or self-care as an excuse to indulge yourself because you think life is too hard or you've earned every little comfort, I think maybe you're misunderstanding the point, right? And you will have a hard time giving up your rights, living into what Paul is talking about here, if that's really what your mindset about what self-care Sabbath is supposed to be. Okay. Uh, third, um, you believe you should never be uncomfortable or challenged. I think self-care and Sabbath can turn into an excuse to just run away from all difficulties. And I think that's actually patently unchristian, okay? It's really an unchristian perspective uh, to run the risk of putting it too strongly. Okay, serving others, it is uncomfortable, 
and it's a challenge, and we need to expect that and not see that as something to avoid, but to be embraced. Now, it can be tough, okay, and that's where this last point comes in. You forget the purpose of it, all right? And to unpack this one, let me, let me go back to that uh, analogy of, of athletes and training imagery, kind of, kind of pros versus amateurs, all right? Um, I don't know if any of you watched this documentary. Uh, it's, a, it's a football documentary about quarterbacks. I got Julie to watch it with me. It was very awesome. To, it was the first time I ever got Julie to watch something really deeply football-related with me. It was very cool. Um, and, and sorry, this is like my one sermon where I get to use all my sports analogies because it's in the passage, so <laughs> I'm just going to use them all today. Um, one of the things you learn from this documentary, um, and it kind of follows three different quarterbacks, is that serious athletes, pros, they know how to rest and why you rest, okay? They know the purpose of rest. And one of the um, kind of, you know, the, the main ways people, t- you know, Talking about this documentary, saw it was in the in, in the the story of Kirk Cousins, the the Vikings quarterback, and he kind of stole the show in in a lot of different ways, um, especially with his hard work. That's actually one of the talking points a lot of people had. Is you see him do some really crazy stuff throughout the documentary. Um, like no one would ever accuse him of like not working hard enough. Like he literally hooks up like electrodes to his brain and like is training his brain and focusing. Like it, it's just some wild stuff. Um, Okay, but one thing that stood out to me is despite all the hard work you see him put in throughout the entire season, we learn in, in one of the episodes that every Tuesday during the season, he takes the whole day off to just be with his family. Now, you might ask, like, well, why would he do that? Um, and you might say, well, he hates football. He needs a break from it on Tuesdays. That's not actually it. Like, for someone who works that hard and cares that much about it, it's not because he hates football and he's just trying to avoid it. It's because he loves it so much. He's a pro. He does it so that he can be totally devoted to foot his job of being a quarterback the other six days of the week. He can put every second of those other six days into uh, trying to win football games and doing what it takes, working hard, um, and he knows to do that while he has to Sabbath. He has to rest. He has to create a boundary for himself for, uh, for at one point in there. It's an important rhythm for him. Okay? So in other words, a pro knows that they ought to Sabbath, but not because they uh, need a, to avoid everything, but because they want, want to be a better athlete. For the purpose of being a better athlete, they Sabbath. Okay? We Sabbath so that we have plenty in our cups to give others. We Sabbath so that we can be pros. Okay? Not because we don't really want to give anything away at all, but because we do. Okay, but we know we need to have some space in there for ourselves where we can fill up our cup so that we can give it to others, so we can live in this pattern offered to us here in 1 Corinthians 9. And I think, unfortunately, a lot of self-care can become unchristian and keep us from becoming pros because self-care becomes what our life is all about, our satisfaction, our comfort, right? And the kingdom just becomes a hobby that we have on the side, where self-care and Sabbath become a shelter to hide from the challenges of the world, like sort of mirage where we think we can control a world full of chaos and stress, but really we're just hiding from it. And when we get trapped in that, we're starting to act like amateurs and not pros. So let me leave you with this question as we close today's sermon. Are you striving to be an amateur or a pro? Let me read verse 12 again. But we have never used this right. We would rather put up with anything than be an obstacle to the good news about Christ.
okay? Amateurs are not going to think about the ways in which the things that they do, their unwillingness to maybe give of themselves for the spread of the kingdom are actually creating obstacles to it. Pros are going to think through that stuff. They're serious. They're willing to give what it takes so that the kingdom of God might grow. I want to challenge us all to think about how we can be pros, professionals in our mindsets, professionals who are serious about seeing the kingdom grow, who are serious about understanding that it looks like being like Jesus to cause the kingdom to grow, and who do what it will take in order to make that happen. Now, when we commit to that, when we're willing to do it, it's true. It is tough. It demands something from us, and we might feel sometimes like it's too much. And whenever we get to that point, I think it's important for us to remember that Jesus is the one who did it first. He's the pro's pro. You can get to be a pretty good pro. No one's going to become the MVP like Jesus is. He's the example for us, and he's not asking us to do anything he wouldn't do himself. And our ultimate hope comes not from our ability to just work at this really hard but to live in the pattern and the power that Jesus offers us to do this, to live not out of some obligation to do this, but out of response to what Jesus has offered us, out of his own self-giving, which gives us a hope and a fullness of life that's greater than anything that we could secure for ourselves by desperately trying to hold on to, to grasp on to what we think is ours. It's not how the kingdom grows and it's not how we become more like Jesus. Right? And we see Jesus model that for us. Now, every week we take communion here at Res City to, I like to use the, the analogy of, or the, the language of tuning us back to it. You know, like instruments can get out of tune, right? We can get out of tune too, okay? It's just natural. It's just natural. Instruments are kind of exposed to the environment of the, of the world as they sit in their case, and they can get out of tune. And so every, every time you take it back out, you've got to tune it again. It's good for us to tune ourselves back to the gospel pattern on a regular basis. And communion is one of the most essential ways, I think, for us as Christians to do that. Okay? And when we reflect, reflect on what's taking place in communion, we're reflecting on what Jesus has done to build his kingdom, to give, not just give up his rights and authority, but to give up his very life for us, all right? We're, we are symbolically uh, taking his body and his blood that has been broken and shed for us, and we're uh, communing with it so that we might get tuned back to that and reminded that as we leave this place here a little bit later on today, we're going out trying to live in that same pattern and understanding that that is how God's kingdom will grow and how we will find life. Um, let me pray for us and then we'll enter into that time of communion. We'd love to have you join us even if you're just visiting today. We just ask that you are a follower of Jesus and we'll also be having some worship going on in the background of that as well. Lord, we thank you that um, giving up of ourselves and being others-oriented in the pattern of the gospel is not just a theoretical thing that sounds good, because it does. And I don't think anyone would read this passage today or listen to this message and think, oh yeah, that, that sounds, that sounds kind of dumb, that sounds kind of stupid. Or, uh, we intuitively understand that this is a, a greater pattern for living, but it's not just a theory, it's not just good advice, it's something you've actually done for us, Lord. And we get to live in response to that, all of our lives are following after you. 
God, I pray that you would help us to be professionals and not amateurs at doing that, but that you would uh, give us wisdom as we we do it, that you would give us hope uh, as we do it, that you would uh, fill us up so that we can do it well with those around us, God. I know it can be a challenge. I know it can be a lot, Lord, but we can rely on the power of your Spirit in order to do it. And I pray that your Spirit would be with us as we uh, seek out how we can do it on a day-to-day basis, Lord. We pray all this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.